0: A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that, it's only £1 a week extra. And your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in South London, but Northumberland is her adopted home, where she now lives and serves as the local MP. A headstrong child, her political awakening can be traced back to a young age and the influence of Thatcher. After graduating, she became a chartered accountant at PwC, but politics was in her sights. She won the Conservative seat for Berwick von Tweed in the 2015 election, a historic Liberal Democrats hold. At first, she was a thorn on the government side as a member of the European Research Group. But under Boris Johnson, she has been rapidly promoted and developed a reputation as one of his most trusted colleagues. She is known as a determined cabinet minister. who can take big outward facing briefs, such as her current one, in charge of Britain's post Brexit trade strategy. She says, when you've got a character like mine, when stuff that's wrong is profoundly irritating and doing something about it is how I want to fix things. This is the job anne thank you for coming on this podcast today. We had it penciled in, I think about a year or so ago, but then you rudely were promoted and the green light we had for you to speak to us had to be put, put on hold as you as you got to grips with your new brief.
1: <laughs> I think that's a nice way of putting it. I haven't been to the country much, but it's lovely to be here.
0: Now, on this podcast, we always begin by saying, would you describe yours as a happy childhood?
1: I had a very happy childhood and amazing. My dad died when I was two, so I was brought up by my amazing and very long-suffering mother and her mum, my granny, so we were a team of three invincible girls.
0: And I was reading about your personality as a child, and I think you had, did you have a t-shirt that said Boss on it?
1: (laughs) Yes, it was given to me when I was two, and it says the Boss. I still have it, it's very small, doesn't fit anymore, but I've kept it. And I think my mother, and in fact everyone else, viewed that as a perfect description of me. I was clear and determined and I think probably made everyone's life a misery unless I succeeded in my missions.
0: So in the household of three ladies, I imagine, as you say, developing strong personality from an early age, did you have big ambitions? Did your uh, mother uh, try and spur you on to do big things?
1: No, the only uh, sense, I suppose, was that education was really important and I was expected to work hard, which I did. I think I was naturally curious I was one of those children that always asked why again and again and again and when I say my mother was long-suffering that's one of the reasons why I was always curious I was wanting to want to learn more so education was a joy for me and I had the extraordinary privilege thanks to actually friends of my father's who funded it to be able to be educated at St Paul's Girls School which is a school uh, in London which genuinely thrives on stimulating the young women there to think for themselves to be creative to push the boundaries so I was very very
0: lucky. So were you d- demanding of answers or were you badly behaved?
1: I don't think I was badly behaved. Uh, yeah, trying was,
0: to stress on parents. No,
1: no, no. I think I was probably quite tiring for my mother because I was always curious. But she is she's a writer and she was always there. I mean, my granny used to take me away to her house for the weekend. So maybe that was the therapy that my mother needed to recover from the ever demanding child. But I think I was fairly easygoing. I had a cat and I was very happy being an only child. I didn't know any different. Uh, so I was very good at, you know, entertaining myself. And I still am. I like my own company.
0: Now, you went on to study at Oxford Polytechnic and you studied maths. At that point, were you at all political or were you, th- were you thinking career-wise anything in particular? No. So
1: when I was at school, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor, but I was really a bit rubbish at chemistry. So when chemistry A-level fell off the uh, opportunity list, becoming a doctor therefore wasn't an option. So I followed my natural instinct for maths and for, for numbers and for logic. I love, and studied maths uni, which was fabulous. I loved it. It was pure maths degree, in of itself, completely useless, other than developing your logic skills and your, in fact, your argumentative skills, which probably my mother would say I already had. So I love that. But I think politics as such, not in focus, I'd become politically aware as a child, but I don't think I'd ever thought that one could be an MP. That wasn't a place that I would go. Did it interest me? Yes, I was fascinated by people that did. I thought it was for people cleverer than me to become MPs.
0: Now... You're at Oxford Polytechnic and, of course, there's also Oxford University. Was there much crossover when you were there at the time? Because there lots of your colleagues today in cabinet room at Oxford University did the two mix.
1: So there was, I mean, socially, lots of mixing. You know, Oxford is a city full of students and there's lots of mixing. So I got involved in the Oxford Union. Eddie Vasey, had been, he'd been at St Paul's, the boys' school with me, so I knew him quite well, and I started going to the union because I was fascinated by these debates, these you know, incredibly erudite young people who could debate. It's not a skill I'd done at all at school, being a scientist. And that's where I got to know people like Michael Gove, who became real friends for life, and I watched amazed as they you know, debated black was white and white was green and green was orange, and I couldn't quite understand how that was possible, but it was a joy to watch. And I was, yeah, genuinely fascinated, but didn't see it as something that would be for me.
0: So you leave university and you qualify as an accountant for PWC. What's the workplace like at that time? Is it it quite like male heavy? Is it quite a mix? Is it fun?
1: Uh, It was great fun. So yes, I joined the city in 1990 in the heart of the city, Pricewaterhouse as it was then. We were probably, I can't remember exactly, but I'd probably say probably 30% women in my cohort but a very egalitarian perspective. Ew was very forward-thinking. Training to be a chartered accountant was just bloody hard work in the last possible way. You work, you know, 12-hour days, and then you go home and you study for three or four every day. It's a fairly brutal schedule. Good training for being an MP, the relentlessness of work. But it was fascinating. And you get to select an area of industry that you want to be involved in as you're training. And I chose manufacturing. I was fascinated by stuff being made. So I got to go to all part, all sorts of parts of the country to do audits and to do reviews with businesses who were Waterhouse clients. And I think that's probably where I got my first taste of you know, having been brought up as a London girl this amazing network of industry across our country You know, I went to Felixstowe in a howling gale to count container boxes I was up in Liverpool doing work in an IT company so I discovered for the first time how extraordinary the whole of our country is from an industrial perspective and I discovered for the first time so many amazing businesses I think that's probably gave me that first taste of how important the UK is across the country not just London which is what I'd known as a child
0: and then you eventually relocate to Northumberland. And I think that's 1996 to serve as governor of the healthcare trust. Why did you make that move? Did you want to get out of London? What was why?
1: so I fell in love, the old fashioned, the old fashioned reason for moving, Lovely. <laughs> and uh, moved up uh, to Northumberland. So I, I. Found a, a new job in Newcastle, working actually in corporate finance. Again, actually an opportunity to discover the industry of the Northeast, which I didn't really know. And what I discovered it was the most fascinating thing. So the size of companies shrank. So where I'd been dealing with city businesses with you know let's say ten noughts on it in the Northeast, they had six noughts on it. So they were much smaller. Their focus wasn't about the size of the company; it was about their people. And I was totally entranced by that. And so I was doing helping them buy and sell companies. And the only important thing was their people. So they wanted to make a sale, that was fine. But if they didn't like the people who were going to buy the company, they didn't sell it because they were too concerned by the people. It was a a really awakening moment that actually there was a part of the country that still thought people first, not money. I'd been brought up through the 80s, through the kind of, you know, the big bang. And my training in the city was through the 90s. And then there I was in an environment which said people are still your most important asset it was an absolute joy and i was i was transfixed that's it i was i'm a northeast girl ever since
0: yes yeah, so you preferred that so you're like bye london yeah completely
1: 100 <laughs> yeah i was gonna stay there and never
0: come back so at what point then did you decide that a you want to be an mp but i suppose also that you want to be a conservative mp Did did the conservative answer become before the mp one
1: so i've always been a conservative i'd always voted conservative i have a I think, you know, a strong set of values about you should be self-sufficient, you should work hard, but you should be entitled to reap the, you know, the benefits and you, of your those And you
0: need those, view, those views by the time you're at university. Oh yeah, without well, yeah. yeah.
1: think, doubt. I think as a, as a very young teenager, I had a, a strong sense of that. Always, always a strong believer. So my granny's father had been a vicar and a teacher and I think she instilled in me that sense of safety net and looking after those who couldn't look after themselves. So I had a very strong sense of care for those that need it. But also that everyone else should just get on and use their skills and do the best they can. So I think that was in, I was instinctively a conservative in that sense, and I voted conservative. I don't think I ever didn't vote conservative, not as I can remember. I have friends who occasionally vote green to wind me up, and I think Ooh, actually now I can see that. But I ever did always voted conservative. Uh, but I was did I think I began to be no. I became involved in local activities in Northumberland, the, the governor of the of the of a school of the healthcare trust where I could, you know, make a difference whilst I had small children when we were busy running two family businesses. And the more I got involved, the more I realised that if you want to make change, you just have to be in the room. It's that simple, actually. Don't whinge about something. If you want to make change, get involved. So I was getting involved. And then I was involved in the local Conservative Association because my mother-in-law was, and you sort of, you know, you help leaflet at election times. And I did a couple of those just with friends, very non-political way. I had very small children and lots of other things to do and then in 2005 when david cameron became leader of the party i got a text from michael gove saying right it's our generation's term now amory come on you've got to get involved i said michael i'm in the northeast which is all red let's be clear and i've got two small children i'm running two businesses don't be ridiculous he said you've got to get involved so i said all right i'll i'll put myself forward i said thinking not a chance to my earlier point that i thought there was no chance that I was up for it. Anyway, I passed the selection board, much to my surprise. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. Perhaps there's a diffidence in there that we don't see anymore, but it was an honest surprise. And then I was asked, What I, and I I'd very clear in my own mind, if I was going to do this and there was any chance, I was happy to stand, I didn't think for a moment I'd ever get elected. I wanted to represent where I lived and the people, you know, my family and my friends and the communities where my children were being brought up and the world that was mine. I I put myself forward for a number of other seats, but didn't get selected, for which actually I was quite grateful because what I really wanted was to be a candidate for berwick bonte tweed and they were kind enough to select me. And this was in 2006. I didn't think for a moment that we could overturn what had been a 40-year Liberal Democrat seat. And in 2010, indeed, we didn't. But we made huge strides and that was a really interesting discovery for me, which was I was putting myself out there completely as a volunteer, busy running my business day to day, that actually... People wanted someone who was willing to stand up for them and take the battering and, you know, beat down walls. And it was a matter of trust. And so I carried on through from 2010 to 2015 as the candidate, fighting for things that needed fixing, discovering that actually you can get stuff done even without being the MP in some levels, which was very gratifying and great for the communities I was working for. And then in 2015, I was elected, which was really exciting and a little bit disconcerting, to be honest, because I generally didn't think we could turn the North East blue. And I was perhaps the... First blue brick in that wall, which is now much bluer.
0: Yeah, and you've kept it since then. So far, so good. So, you enter Parliament in 2015, mm. and now you're someone who is a Brexiteer. I wondered, entering politics, you're talking about all the kind of the local issues, how you want to stand up for your constituencies, mm. why it was so important for that reason you had the seat that you, that you went on to have. Quite quickly, Brexit starts to dominate. <laughs> Did you have any sense when you entered the or did you did you plan for that to be the thing that you spend most of your time on? Because, for example, we had your co- your cabinet colleague Suella on recently, <laughs> and obviously she took on a really big role, and that was also in the ERG. And she's saying, you know, she had so many other things she actually wanted to talk about when she came into Parliament, but before you know it, if it's a cause close to your heart, you end up letting that dominate most of your time.
1: I think that's a very fair challenge. So we we all arrived, Suella and I, whether you know the 2015 intake together. And we had a number of things. So I had some issues about ambulance services and I was able to raise those early on. And to my amazement, discovered that you could genuinely make a difference as a backbencher was that that was one of the most empowering moments, actually, to really feel that happen and to change national policy as a result of something awful that had happened in my own patch. But yes, as you say, there was this developing narrative. And of course, part of our manifesto had been that we would bring a referendum. So this this running activity about that came through and we brought the legislation in. Because of course David Cameron had been to Brussels to try and negotiate what were, looking back on it, four very small reforms that he was asking for, and in not getting them, he went. Do you know what? The British people won't stand for that anymore. And so I had always been Brexit here, So I have a, my mother is half French, very French.
0: And you speak fluent French. I speak
1: fluent French. Yes, you have to when you've got those two cousins. Uh, <laughs> it's the only way to keep up with you more. And I love, I love all my family dear. I love France. I love Europe. But I thought I've always thought the EU construct was just not suited to the UK, that we weren't able to flourish as much as you know I felt we can as a country and that actually we were perhaps being a useful part of a group of 28 countries, but actually for the UK that wasn't necessarily the right thing. So I was a very happy and comfortable Brexiteer. I think what surprised me, and I blame Steve Baker completely, is he was obviously, as a older and wiser MP, looking for those who would help the, the Brexit group and he asked me to join the Conservative grouping for Brexit and I naively said yes (laughs) and having done that because I was happy to talk about it and stand up for you know a principle which I was very comfortable with found myself thrust into the limelight both of the ERG which is sort of if you like the internal MPs Brexit group but also the Vote Leave campaign and I became a director of Vote Leave and championed all the work around Women for Britain and working across the country with our amazing cohort of, of volunteers who came out to champion what was this extraordinary weird thing called a referendum uh, and yes that very much filled a lot of my time but it never it never stopped that continuum the beauty of being an MP and I say that when I travel the world now people say very short visit I say I have to get back it's Friday and I have to be in my constituency on Friday and people look a bit bemused when you're talking to you know leaders and rulers, and they say, oh, I say, because that is the anchor which makes you an MP. Everything else you do, however big or small, is very important, but your constituency is always and I used to come back to London on Monday and go and see the Vote Leave team and see Matthew Elliott and Dominic Cummings. And they'd be like, oh, you know, it feels really difficult. And I'd say, trust me, North East is saying, please, can we leave? And it was really interesting. I, I brought a very strong that what we saw then, which was this incredible both voting numbers and strong Brexit voice from the North East. And I used to bring it back to London every Monday morning and sort of energise the team that actually... In the rest of the country, outside the London bubble, there was a very strong support for Brexit.
0: It's interesting, you mentioned Vote Leave, and I I remember we had those Dominic Cummings blogs, I think, during the EU referendum slightly, and then when he entered Downing Street, and I I remember always thinking you were one of the only MPs he had something positive to say about.
1: Uh, Yes, I believe that may be true.
0: (laughs) And now, mentioned the European Research Group, and obviously the result comes, listeners will know what happens next, Theresa May becomes Prime Minister, starts off a strong rhetoric, begins to go downhill, and... I want to talk about your role in the European Research Group. You were a PPS, um, mm. the first one point four in the Ministry of Defence, mm. but you left that role over Theresa May's Brexit withdrawal agreement. Was that a difficult decision? Did you face much pressure from your colleagues? Of course, PPS resignations aren't treated like cabinet resignations, but I think there's still, you know, something that is not welcomed by the government. So, no,
1: it's always difficult when you're, you know, everything is successful in politics because you play as a team. If the team fragments, you're less likely to be successful. But in the Brexit space I had always been a very honest and open Brexiteer and I did feel that Theresa May's proposition simply wasn't going to deliver a genuine Brexit, which for me was really important. And indeed the ERG sort of held the, the anchor on what a a full Brexit which meant we were free of EU ties would mean. So when it became clear that you know the proposition on the table wasn't one I it wasn't it wasn't difficult to leave. I mean I was sad to you know longer part the name, but at the end of the day, as I say, the only the only thing that's important really is your constituents as an MP and the person you look in the mirror in in the mornings and that's yourself.
0: And then just a final one that I remember when we first met you were in the LG and I think you were doing some of the whipping so did your maths degree help with that?
1: Incredibly important to be able to count beyond 150 yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now we get to a position where ultimately Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister we know what happens with that Brexit agreement Theresa May fails to get it through and it becomes a party which is... Uh, Maybe it's the wrong way of putting it more proudly leave, but is is going on a clearer direction on Brexit. Mm -hmm. And it's also a government where you were suddenly seen as a rising star and Boris Johnson promotes you. When it came to the the first role you received, I think that was defence procurement, Mm -hmm. what was it like moving from, you know, backbencher and in a way being seen as a bit of a rebel? You can argue that ELG was directing the government in direction they later adopted, mm-hmm. but at the time, as I mentioned, more on the side, to suddenly having you know collective responsibility and all those things.
1: So the really interesting point you make there, which is actually you should always fight for what you believe in, because if a consensus majority lands in the same place, that becomes government policy. So no one should ever feel that their opinion isn't valid just because it doesn't match the government's view of the day, because that's how politics makes progress. That's how change is affected. But yes, so becoming a junior minister in July of 2019, well, was it was a huge honour. Again, if I thought that uh, I was no chance of become an MP, the idea that I was suddenly a minister of state was genuinely a surprise to me, though seemingly not necessarily to everybody else, which was very encouraging. It was fascinating to take on the role. I'd done a lot as a backbencher championing the Armed Forces Covenant. It was an area, I've got an RAF base at my constituency, so I was very involved in making sure that our military families in particular were supported. So it was a fascinating role looking at literally kit, kit and people and how we manage the military estates. And I learned a great deal at Pace. One of the things you discover when you become a minister for the first time is the mysterious management by the civil service of its ministers and the machinery of government. And it's definitely an apprenticeship system. You can't really know. I was given Gerald Kaufman's book, How to Be a Minister. Which is fascinating, very funny, actually very funny, and spot on. It hasn't changed at all in 25 years. But the important rules about knowing what, where you fit in how government works as a minister, I think is the most important thing I learned, which is you direct. So you're not a, you're not a chief executive, you're a chairman, if you like. You're directing, and civil servants want to work with their ministers. That's really important. But it's difficult to effect sudden change. One of the challenges that obviously the Prime Minister had as he was trying to deliver Brexit is that it's it's just quite complicated to make the machinery of government move at pace into a very different direction. So I think that my, my role in defence procurement was fascinating and I was able to bring two key uh, new pieces of kit into into being if that's the way you describe them and you know a real honor to know that as i now watch it all being built and it's the next generation of both our army and our navy's kit that's extraordinary to think that i was able to help get that into place but it was as much as anything it was a real apprenticeship on how the machinery of
0: government fits together you mentioned civil servants how they want to work for ministers i just wondered on that i mean There are some in the government who have quite interesting rhetoric on civil servants Um, and whether it's, you know, working from home or I think Jacob Rees-Mogg has recently been doing spot check and inspections. Is, Is your view that civil servants do do a lot of good or actually, generally speaking, want to work with the government?
1: So yes, Jacob. I here was crawling through our corridors in the Department of International Trade the other day. But as I've got the top statistics of any department, mostly because I've got a fantastic team of young people, and they were very keen to come back to work. I think we passed the Jacob Rees-Mogg test, so that was good. Civil servants are amazing people. It's an incredibly sort of deep relationship they have with government, and they have they move around through their careers, and they bring with them this extraordinary understanding of how the complexity of of a machinery of government works. Clearly, there are some who are more highly skilled in certain areas. I think when some people say they don't do what they should, my experience has been they're very, very literate, very good on policy. I'm always seeking out people who are good at data analytics who will yeah. use data because I'm a mathematician. That's how I think. So where's the data? I'll say, uh, I you know I understand that you think this is a great policy. And I sort of see where you're coming from and, you know, your logic setting it out. But actually, I need to understand it by looking at the data and making an analysis through those fact-based systems. So it's not to say that that doesn't happen elsewhere in the machinery, but as a minister, you often don't see that. So I think if there was a need for a broader mix of skills in the service, civil service, it would be more of that sort of analytical thinking, which is arguably what a minister is asked to do before they take a decision. And I think that's where some of the challenge comes. But I've never had anything but an amazing team of civil servants with me in any of my departments.
0: Now you're in your second cabinet position because you were International Development Secretary and then it was ultimately merged into the Foreign Office. So you had to, I think you took a time out of government in between. It's a bit strange going from cabinet minister to backbench when, but it's not through a sacking or a resignation if that makes sense. <laughs> So it seems it's one of the calmest ways to move between. And
1: so it was. It was a yes. It was a pause. I had been, uh, as it turned out, the last international development secretary through COVID, and I didn't go anywhere. So it was a quite an odd way to be international development secretary. We developed because, of course, we had teams still across the world who were managing you know, COVID in some of the most poorest of countries with the least resources. So we developed a, a sort of virtual visiting system where my small team who were in the office with me would work out food or tea or flavours and we would pretend we were we would beam in and we would meet people in you know who were in Camps or working in hospitals, supporting the work that they were doing through COVID, and indeed education in particular, we were trying to continue to make sure that education was keeping going in many countries. While sitting around the table in my office, eating or you know drinking Kenyan tea or eating amazing Iraqi cake, so we had some extraordinary ways of trying to make sure that we could keep up. But it was it was a really difficult time because actually international development and you know the the, the spending of overseas development aid was at its most critical usage to that I, I um, ran the refunding of Garvey which is the vaccine initiative global vaccine initiative we raised 20 percent more than we thought we would and that was critical to helping deliver Covid vaccines once they appeared later in the year throughout some of the poorest countries so it was an extraordinary and empowering first role as a secretary of state but quite a strange one because it was through Covid
0: and I just want to ask you a few final questions on your current brief before we finish this podcast and of course you know. I Secretary of State for International Trade. As you mentioned earlier, this means you're often out of the country. And we're speaking on a week where there's obviously lots in the news about steel tariffs and the government's plan to extend it, which some say could be in the breach of WTO rules. I just wondered, as someone who campaigned for Brexit, you've got figures such as Tom Tugendhat, who did not campaign for Brexit, saying that this is protectionist and this should not be what we're doing. Do you understand the criticism? Does it make you uncomfortable at all, the fact that it seems a bit protectionist?
1: So I hear the challenge and I would be the first to say we want to have, and we do have, an incredibly open market. We trade through free and fair trade, which is a stamp of UK respect and why countries are queuing up to do free trade agreements with us, because we are believers in free and fair trade. The challenge of using the tariff system, which we inherited when we left the EU in terms of steel, is that there are some country actors in the steel markets who are not working by a free and fair trade systems and they dump cheap steel into markets thereby really disturbing those competitive markets steel industries are strategic every country has a steel industry because it's strategic if we needed to we need to be able to produce steel for our own purposes we need to make sure we have one and it's a very expensive business you know firing up a furnaces you know millions of pounds worth of activity so the challenge of maintaining these tariffs for the next two years which have rolled over as i say from when we left the eu system is because our steel industry does need to have a relatively level playing field in which to play to try and stop that dumping of certain types of steel these tariffs will end in two years time that's that's the framework and after that i wouldn't be able to bring any more on so it's very much A protection whilst the steel industry looks to try and build up. One of the issues obviously we're seeing, and not only in the UK, but across steel industries, is looking to move to clean steel, using clean energy and producing steel in a different way. And that's something that we are working, obviously led by Bayes, we are working very closely with our steel mills to help them to develop. And then there will be new ways, I have no doubt, going forwards to ensure that clean steel is the one that is encouraged and sold around the world
0: last trade question just one of the big uk trade goals is to join the cptpp i struggled to say it but i think practice I got makes perfect got do you think we're on course to do that this year
1: so i hope so i would never wish to give you a, a precise date because at any point a trade Very negotiation lucky. can meet a meet a blocker but uh, so far it's going really well we passed the first stage so we're the first country to apply to accede to this trading block so we're sort of testing their frameworks they've never done it before so the first part was effectively I can describe as like exam questions you know do you have these laws in place what are your labour laws all those sorts of things so we passed that set of tests in the run-up just after Christmas And now we're into the market access discussions, which are progressing well. But obviously, we're having conversations with 11 countries at a time. So every country has, you know, their particular area of interest or concern. So my team are working diligently through that with them. And so obviously, last week, when I was in Geneva for WTO meetings, I was able to catch up with many of those countries' trade ministers who all gave me assurance that we seem to be doing the right thing and hopefully passing the test. So would I like to say I'd like to have that as a Christmas present? Yes,
0: and their final three questions the first one is just there's lots of cabinet reshuffle speculation at the moment and obviously this happens often more than once a year often every few months but when you're looking about for example in this round lots of names of saying oh this briefing saying people who could go and these briefings could come from anywhere you know quasi and your name comes up what do you do when you see that i mean it's worth pointing out Lots of cabinet reshuffle speculation has proven to be very wrong over the years. The number of times I've read that Liz Truss was going to be sacked, only for her to become the longest serving cabinet minister. (laughs) Um, But do you read it? Do you ignore it? What do you do?
1: So it's hard to miss because people tend to send it to you. Uh, It's nice. I know. People are friends and family. Yeah, yeah. I no. And, you know, team. I honestly, uh, my granny taught me a long time ago that you shouldn't believe everything you read in the papers. And that stuck the wisdom of a granny at a young age. And I'm busy getting on with what is a genuinely fascinating and extraordinary role. As a Brexiteer, I get to be delivering one of the key planks of Brexit opportunity, which is our own trade policy. So, honestly, I'm going to get on and keep doing that for as long as the Prime Minister wishes me to do that if he wishes to move me or send me back to the backbenches as he's done before uh, I will also be perfectly content with that there's plenty of things to be doing there too but I hope to be able to carry on doing this role for a while because there's loads to do we're just getting going on our relationship with the US we've got some really interesting work in the Indo-Pacific we've got work uh, going on now that we've got Australia and New Zealand under our belts to help build those relationships so there's loads to be doing so I hope for the time being that he will let me crack on and do that but uh, I'm not prone to worrying too much about what journalists think
0: (laughs) Now, you mentioned that you were on the first bricks in the blue wall for the Tory party. Obviously, we're speaking after two by-election losses, mm-hmm. one of which was Tiverton and Honiton. Lots of your colleagues are very worried about the rise of the Liberal Democrats if you look at a succession of by-elections, you know, and Amherst and others. Uh, do you think it is a big problem the party needs to take seriously?
1: So there was... So I fought and won against Liberal Democrats, so I'm very tuned to their long-lasting ability. So when, after... 2017 the numbers really diminished after 2015 and then 2017 they diminished and people said oh well you know that's it it's all over I said no of course it's not they are a party that likes to work at a local level and try and reflect that onto the national stage don't for a moment think that they won't be back Uh, and a by-election territory is where they are at their best because they don't have to be delivering government policy they don't have any need to for instance the the winning Lib Dem candidate in Tiverton has declared that he's going to call on the government to give a fuel duty cut. Well, I'm thrilled about that, but if his Lib Dem colleagues who were MPs before him had voted with us, he would have been able to say the Lib Dems also supported fuel cuts. But they didn't. They voted against it. So that sort of ability to say one thing and do the other is classic Lib Dem tactics. You know, mid-term by-elections invariably do give the government a hammering. You know, Hartlepool was a notable exception which was interesting, fantastic and it was wonderful to welcome Jill Mortimer into the House with us, but it is relatively normal for by-elections mid-term to see the government of the day get a trouncing and I hope very much that when the next general election comes Tiverton uh, and Haunton will be returned
0: blue without question. It's probably worth it is the biggest by-election defeat in history if you look at the numbers I think. Now just finally the final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast which is just what is the worst advice you've ever been given which you can have ignored or you could have taken on board and then thought why did I follow?
1: That's a really interesting question. Uh, I listen to everything people say and I reach my own judgment I think my mother would say I'm probably not very good at taking advice I disagree I think I hear what everyone says but I will filter it in my own way so I don't think I would say anyone's given me good or bad advice people can tell me what they like and I will note it and ponder it and filter it through the AMT view of the world and then reach a decision so I wouldn't chastise anyone for giving me bad advice I probably just
0: dismissed it on the way through you're just still wearing your boss t-shirt metaphorically, yeah. so it's still there.
1: Under <laughs> my under my shirt, like like a Superman t-shirt.
0: Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just to email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.